So we're reading from 1 Kings chapter 11. King Solomon, however, loved many foreign women besides Pharaoh's daughter, Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians and Hittites. They were all they were from nations about which the Lord had told the Israelites, you must not intermarry with them because they will surely turn your hearts after their gods. Nevertheless, Solomon held fast to them in love. He had 700 wives of royal birth and 300 concubines, and his wives led him astray. As Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God. As the heart of David, his father, had been, he followed Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites. So Solomon did evil in the eyes of the Lord. He did not follow the Lord completely, as David, his father, had done. On a hill east of Jerusalem, Solomon built a high place for Shemosh, the detestable god of Moab, and for Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites. He did the same for all his foreign wives, who burned incense and offered sacrifices to their gods. The Lord became angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice. Although he had forbidden Solomon to follow other gods, Solomon did not keep the Lord's commands. So the Lord said to Solomon, Since this is your attitude, and you have not kept my covenant and my decrees, which I commanded you, I will most certainly tear the kingdom away from you and give it to one of your subordinates. Nevertheless, for the sake of David your father, I will not do it during your lifetime. I will tear it out of the hand of your son. Yet I will not tear the whole kingdom from him, but will give him one tribe, for the sake of David my servant, and for the sake of Jerusalem, which I have chosen. Then the Lord raised up against Solomon an adversary, Hadad the Edomite, from the royal line of Edom. Earlier, when David was fighting with Edom, Joab, the commander of the army, who had gone up to bury the dead, had struck down all the men of Edom. Joab and all the Israelites stayed there for six months until they had destroyed all the men in Edom. But Hadad, still only a boy, fled to Egypt with some Edomite officials who had served his father. They set out from Midian and went to Paran. Then taking people from Paran with them, they went to Egypt, to Pharaoh king of Egypt, who gave Hadad a house and land and provided him with food. Pharaoh was so pleased with Hadad that he gave him a sister of his own wife, Queen Taphines, in marriage. The sister of Taphines bore him a son named Ganubath, whom Taphines brought up in the royal palace. Then Ganubath lived with Pharaoh's own children. While he was in Egypt, Hadad heard that David rested with the ancestors and that Joab, the commander of the army, was also dead. Then Hadad said to Pharaoh, Let me go so that I may return to my own country. What have you lacked here that you want to go back to your own country? Pharaoh asked. Nothing, Hadad replied, but do let me go. And God raised up against Solomon another adversary, Rezon, son of 
Elidia, who had fled from his master, Hadezer, the son of Zobah. When David destroyed Zobah's army, Rezon gathered a band of men around him and became their leader. They went back to Damascus, where they settled and took control. Rezon was Israel's adversary, as long as Solomon lived, adding to the trouble caused by Hadad. So Rezon ruled in Aram and was hostile towards Israel. So Jeroboam, son of, son of Nebat, rebelled against the king. He, he was one of Solomon's officials, an Ephraimite from Zerida, and his mother was a widow named Zeruah. Here, in, here is the account of how he rebelled against the king. Solomon had built the terraces and had filled in the gap in the wall of the city of David, his father. Now Jeroboam was a man of standing, and when Solomon saw how well the young man did his work, he put him in charge of the whole labour force of the tribes of Joseph. About that time, Jeroboam was going out of Jerusalem, and Ijah, the prophet of Shiloh, met him on the way, wearing a new cloak. The two of them were alone out in the country, and Ijah took hold of the new cloak he was wearing and tore it into twelve pieces. Then he said to Jeroboam, Take ten pieces for yourself, for this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. See, I am going to tear the kingdom out of Solomon's hand and give you ten tribes. But for the sake of my servant David and the city of Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, he will have one tribe. I will do this because they have forsaken me and worshipped Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, Chemosh, the god of the Moabites, and Molech, the god of the Moabites, and Molech, the god of the Ammonites, and have not walked in obedience to me, nor done what is right in my eyes, nor kept my decrees and laws of David, as David, Solomon's father, did. But I will not take the whole kingdom out of Solomon's hand. I have made him ruler all the days of his life for the sake of my David, of David my servant, whom I chose and who obeyed my commands and decrees. I will take the kingdom from his son's hand and give you ten tribes. I will give one tribe to his son so that David, my servant, may always have a lamp before me in Jerusalem, the city where I chose to put my name. However, as for you, I will take you and you will rule over all that your heart desires. You will be king over Israel. If you, do what I, if you do whatever I command you and walk in obedience to me and do what is right in my eyes by obeying my decrees and commands, as David my servant did, I'll be with you. I will build you a dynasty as enduring as the one I built for David and will give Israel to you. I will humble David's descendants because of this, but not forever. Solomon tried to kill Jeroboam, but Jeroboam fled to Egypt as Shishak the king had stayed there until Solomon's death. As for the other events of Solomon's reign, all he did and the wisdom he displayed, are they not written in the book of the Annals of Solomon? Solomon reigned in Jerusalem over all Israel for 40 years. Then he rested with his ancestors and was buried in the city of David, his father. And Rehoboam, his son, succeeded him as king. That's me in the corner. That's me in the spotlight. 
the music that's played when you're 21 defines your generation. I was 21 in the year 1991, the year REM released their song, Losing My Religion. And my generation, we played it, we sang it, we owned it as our anthem. Was it just a song for a previous generation, my generation, the baby boomers' generation, Solomon's generation? Here's the wisest man in the world. In chapter 3 of 1 Kings, he loves the Lord. Today, it's he in the spotlight losing his religion. Solomon's love for the Lord grows cold. He violates the first commandment to have no other gods but the Lord. He bows down to other gods. And it's hard to put a positive spin at all on what happens in this chapter. It is just so sad. It's tragic. Uh, One of the saddest things I've ever had to do um, as a pastor is to have an exit interview with people who've not just decided to leave the church but to leave the faith. Now, most of us would think that would never be me. That song, Losing My Religion, that is a song for other people, but not for me. It's for people in another generation. Friends, God has preserved this chapter here for us as a warning for us today not to lose what Solomon lost, his religion, his kingdom, the Lord's favour, his glory. All of it he loses the wisest man on earth who once loved the Lord. And it makes us ask a very sobering question. How? How could, he, how could he give it up? How could he lose it all? And what's to stop Solomon's REM song becoming my song as well? Well, the answer is Christ. What he's done and he has come and he has taught us a different song to sing. But first of all, we need to look at Solomon, and I think we need to pray. So will you pray with me? Father in heaven, this is sobering stuff today. So we ask, Heavenly Father, open our ears to hear what you, through your Spirit, are saying to us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so keep your Bibles open. If you look in your leaflet, you'll see an outline of where we're going. At the end of chapter 10, Solomon has it all. Power, glory, gold, and girls. (laughs) Chapter 11, that's chapter 11, tells us four things he loses. First of all, Solomon loses his religion. How? It's because of who he decided to love. Verse 1, King Solomon, however, loved many foreign women besides Pharaoh's daughter, Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, and Hittites. It's not just that he fell in love. How could you with that many? He chooses to love them. The issue was they were from nations about which the Lord had told the Israelites, you must not intermarry with them because they will surely turn your hearts after their gods. Nevertheless, Solomon held fast to them in love and they, they turned his heart away from the Lord so that inevitably he joins with them in worshipping their gods, Moloch, Ashtoreth. Now we need to see, it's not that he stopped worshipping the Lord altogether. He just worshipped the Lord alongside the gods of his wives too. Now this is called syncretism. That is when you take something unique, your your unique uh, devoted allegiance to the Lord and you water it down and you become one with the world you're in. 
His society, no doubt, was tolerant like ours. It was inclusive like ours. In fact, he made it so. And surely in a pluralistic society, that's a respectful way to conduct yourselves, isn't it? Isn't it? No, because notice how Solomon's action is described in verse 6. Look, it's evil in the eyes of the Lord. Why evil? Because it's premised on a lie which denies truth. The lie is that other gods are equally real and therefore equally valid to be worshipped. The truth that that lie denies is that there is really only one true God, one real God, and therefore worship, valid worship, must be to worship him and him alone. Whereas Solomon, we read, did not follow the Lord completely as his father David had done. Now, of course, David, we know, he had not been perfect, not by a long shot, but he was a first commandment man. The God he worshipped and served was the Lord and the Lord alone. Solomon did not. Instead, he gave his heart to women who did not love the Lord. Now, this is why, application, if you love the Lord, you should only give your heart, that is romantically, in love, to another person who loves the Lord. Uh, Why? Because love, romantic love, sex, marriage, bonds two people together, not just physically, but in their beings. Our sexuality, that is the giving of ourselves to another in that act, is so deeply personal, it affects our being, it affects your heart. You cannot reduce it to a physical act. The idea that it's possible to have sex with whoever and for that not to affect your wholehearted worship of God is frankly a deception. And that's a deception which our society and culture today want us to swallow lock, stock and barrel. But you cannot do it. It is a deception. Five times in four verses, this point is laboured. Verse 2, they will surely turn your heart. Verse 3, his wives led him astray. Verse 4, his wives turned his heart. Verse 4, his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God as the heart of David his father had been. Now, heart in the Bible doesn't just mean feelings. It means the centre, our willing, our loving, our thinking centre. It's our deep self. It's our true self. And the warning here is that depending who we give ourselves to, our true self can be changed. In my pastoral experience of more than 20 years, when someone stops being a Christian, it is never ever a sudden decision. It's almost always a slow drift away. And more often than not, it involves a non-Christian lover. Losing your first love. Solomon didn't wake up one morning and just say, well, I'm going to give up on my, Lord, on my love for the Lord today. And my guess is that no one who loves the Lord does that. It begins with him disobeying God by marrying the first, one foreign woman, the Egyptian princess, and then him realising, I'm not struck with lightning. And then he normalises that. And then, of course, he gains power and glory and gold and therefore decides to get married again. And it kind of makes sense from his point of view as the king to enter into foreign alliances by marriage with foreign women. Surely that's a good way to promote peace in the place. 
he gets married again and again and again and again. And you'd get bored if I said that word 700 times, right? But that's how often he gets married, not to mention the 300 concubines. Now, those numbers are out of this world and they are made, meant to make us drop our jaws and gawk. Well, that was good. See you in three years. They are meant to make us think, what on earth was he thinking, right? We are meant to think this is not normal. This is not right. And we'd be right. It is not right. It's not right that on Saturday, Solomon sleeps with one wife, and then on Sunday, another, and then on Monday, another. It is not right that on, Sol on Sunday, Solomon worships the Lord, and on Monday, he worships Molech. That is not right. You divide your heart. If you love Harry Potter, you become like Voldemort. You split your soul. Your love becomes shallow. The Lord becomes someone you can just stomp on and discard. Your spouse wouldn't put up with it. How much less the Lord? I once... Um, in a previous church, had to speak to the husband of a lady who attended our church. The husband wasn't a Christian, but um, he saw no reason why he shouldn't bring into the house, to live in the house, his mistress with whom he was having a relationship and he had his kids there in the house. And he saw no issue with that. And no one said a thing to rebuke him. And guess what? That was my job. <laughs> um, but he couldn't see. The process was gradual. One small compromise followed by another, followed by a larger one. Over time, it was gradual. Over time, it seared his conscience. Over time, blunted his morals. Over time, blinded him. Over time. Verse 4 says, it happened, not immediately, but as Solomon grew old. Temptation. When do you feel it the most? At what period in your life do you feel it the most? I once asked an older man at church in his 80s. I was in my 30s. I said, tell me, what, what's the hardest time in your life to be a Christian? What's the hardest time that you wrestle with temptation? I was hoping he'd say, oh, it's in your 30s. It gets better. His answer, the one you're in, the decade you're in. In other words, there was never a time when temptation wasn't easy when you didn't feel its pull. It changes in its nature, but it's still there. So if you're young and single, do not give yourself away sexually to someone who doesn't love the Lord and be careful who you choose as your life, life's partner that they love the Lord. This is really important. If you're middle-aged and maybe, you know, you've seen things and, well, frankly, you're feeling bored, guard your heart. Don't seek new exciting things. You'll go off beam with a punctured soul that will leak love until you are a dried up husk. If you're in your 60s or 70s, guard your heart. Don't give yourself away because you never have before and time's running out and it's only one, one fling. Maintain your first love. If you're here and your spouse doesn't know the Lord, um... Well, you, of course, live with this, don't you? You know how hard it is to maintain a love for the Lord and a love for your spouse who doesn't love the Lord. 
you, of course, need encouragement, massive encouragement. Don't get a divorce, but, you know, massive encouragement from people who do love the Lord. And maybe you're here and you're that spouse, maybe who doesn't love the Lord, and you're thinking, well, this is something you ought to think about. Make it easy for your spouse. Decide to love the Lord. You know, um, it's so hard to be divided, isn't it? And we don't want to be like Solomon who lost his religion because he didn't just lose his religion. Secondly, he lost his kingdom. Verse 9, the Lord became angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice. Now, God doesn't appear to many people in their lifetimes. It's very rare. If it's happened to you, don't expect it to happen again. It's very, very rare. Solomon had experienced God directly, not once, but twice. But Solomon forgot it, and he couldn't plead ignorance. The Lord had forbidden Solomon to follow other gods, verse 10. Yet Solomon did not keep the Lord's commands. And so verse 11, the Lord said to Solomon, Since that's your attitude and you haven't kept my commandment and covenant and my decrees, which I commanded you, I will most certainly tear the kingdom away from you and give it to one of your subordinates. The Lord will tear it away. Now, if you had been reading the whole Bible and you'd got to the high point of Solomon's kingdom, this would tear your heart out to read these words because you've realised this is not a small thing. The whole Bible has been building over hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years to the glory of Solomon's kingdom. All the centuries of suffering that have led up to this moment, you know, the struggle Solomon's father David have had, all the preciousness of God's unique promise to David, all the grace of God in giving, gifting Solomon wisdom and power and glory, the unique privilege he granted Solomon of being king over Israel at her highest point in the history of the world, never equaled again, he lost it. What a failure. Now a word to the men. Many of us are married. Many of us have kids. Many of us have grandkids. Of course, there are no guarantees that if you persevere in the Lord that they will. There are no guarantees, but there are patterns. You remain faithful to the Lord. There are potentially generations of believers who will be impacted by your example, some of them yet unborn. But compromise your love, water down your love for the Lord, practice syncretism like Solomon did, and generations after you could walk away. We form our children, we impact our grandchildren in a unique way. We model to them faith. We teach them how much the Lord is important. Others might be phonies in their life, but they know us. They know whether we believe what we believe. Solomon blew it. He lost his religion. He lost the kingdom. And thirdly, he lost the Lord's favour. In Solomon's remaining years, the Lord raises up three adversaries against him. Verse 14, Hadad, the Edomite, that's to the south east, right? You've got, verse 23, Rezan, the Aramean, to the northeast, up near Syria. And verse 26, Jeroboam, from within Solomon's own kingdom. Now, usually when an enemy is described, they're described in such a way that we side against them, you know, like snidely whiplash or someone like that. 
Okay, not the way these ones are described. In fact, in the way they're described, and you might have picked this up, we feel a sympathy for them. Hadad the Edomite. He was the sole child survivor from a six-month genocide campaign conducted by Joab, David's army general. As a child, he flees to Egypt. He's given refuge um, and a house and food by Pharaoh. You see, in the way it's described, he, not Solomon, gets our sympathy. Well, then there's Jeroboam, you know, the young Israelite official working for Solomon who was so, so competent a young man, he was put in charge of all the workers. He sounds like a really good guy, doesn't he? The way these adversaries are described put us on their side. And even more so if you think more broadly than this and, and you read this chapter but your mind spans across the Bible characters that you know and you ask the question, in the description of these adversaries, who do these adversaries remind us of? Hadad, the young man pursued by the king of Israel and his army. It sounds to me like, very much like a younger David, what he went through when he was pursued by King Saul. Or when Hadad finds himself sheltered by Pharaoh, it evokes the image of a, a younger man, Moses, who was in danger but taken into the palace. Or when Hadad hears that King David is dead and so now he thinks it's safe to leave Egypt and go back to his homeland. Who does that remind you of? It has echoes of what will happen to Joseph, Jesus' earthly father, who fled to Egypt for safety and he hears that King Herod is dead and now thinks it's safe to go home. What about Rezin, the Aramean, who became the leader of a ragtag group of men, outcasts, who gets together a guerrilla army? Again, that has echoes of a younger David who collects a group around him of disaffected soldiers. Or Jeroboam, the third adversary, he's presented with a torn coat, a coat torn into 12 pieces, where does that make your mind go to but to Joseph, Jacob's son, one of the 12 whose colourful coat gets torn? The details don't match exactly and they're not meant to. It's just enough to evoke these characters who had the Lord's favour in mind. Um, You know, Jeroboam, young, competent, who's put in charge of the forced labourers. That takes me to Joseph, of course, in Egypt, though young, was competent and put in charge of the prisoners in Egypt's prison. Or verse 38, God offers to start again with Jeroboam, reminding me a little of God suggesting something very similar to Moses or, in fact, what he did with Noah earlier on. Or verse 40, Solomon tries to kill Jeroboam, but Jeroboam flees to Egypt, stays there until Solomon's dead, reminds me again of Joseph and Mary fleeing to Egypt with Jesus because Herod wants to kill the child, which makes Solomon like Herod in the way the story is told. You put together all of that and what do those echoes mean? You see, what it says loud and clear is that Solomon has lost the Lord's favour. The Lord is not for him anymore. So the whole chapter is is, is just a massive tragedy. Solomon loses his religion, Solomon loses his kingdom, Solomon loses the Lord's favour, so that at the end of his life, Solomon loses his glory. You know, you'd think the epitaph for the wisest man in the world, the king of the kingdom of God at its height, would be a glorious epitaph, wouldn't it? Wouldn't you? 
But all we have at the end of the chapter are three short verses summing up Solomon's life. It's so sad. Verse 41, just a cross-reference for ancient historians who want to look up the sources. Verse 42, he reigned in Jerusalem 40 years. Verse 43, he was died and he was buried. That's it. That's the sum of his life. No glory, nothing noteworthy that we're meant to remember him fondly for, nothing in the New Testament to suggest that he actually will be in heaven. He left the Lord. The Lord left him. Sad and tragic end. Well, that's he in the spotlight, losing his religion and more. That song was definitely a song for Solomon in his generation, a tragedy for him. But what does his loss mean for us? You see, he was the king. He was the king of the kingdom of God. And what he did had impact for the people in his kingdom. Um, Was Solomon's anthem to be the anthem for successive generations because of what he did? And sadly, the answer is yes. From this moment on, the story of, in one, the books of 1 and 2 Kings, the story of Israel and her kings is a downward spiral. There are a few moments of hope. There were six kings who were bright spots. But by and large, the whole story is one of decline until 2 Kings finishes with Jerusalem destroyed, the temple burnt, the people in exile, the monarchy over. No more kings. That's the end of the kings. And please see, this is not just sad for Israel. It is a tragic, tragic story for the nations of the world. Why? Because the king of the kingdom of God was meant to be a light and a beacon to the nations of the world, coming to know God and to be blessed through his kingdom. Think of the queen of Sheba who travelled all the way from modern-day Yemen on camels. That's a long way, Right? Um, up to Jerusalem to see Solomon and to be blessed by him. But the fact that the rot set in with Solomon and the physical kingdom of God came to an end with the death of the final king in 2 Kings 25, that is bad news for the whole world. And we note, since then, Israel has never, ever had a king again. Except one. Look at verse 12. When God tells Solomon he'll tear the kingdom from him, there is a glimmer of hope. It won't happen yet, the tearing. It won't happen completely. One tribe will be given for Solomon's son to rule over for the sake of Solomon's father David, the tribe of Judah. The Lord says the same when he's talking with Jeroboam. And then in verse 39, God says, I will humble humble David's descendants because of this, but not forever. Not forever. God's earlier promise to David would still stand. There would be a king who would eventually rule, a son of David, one last king, an eternal king. Enter, of course, Jesus, the son of David. Now, of course, his glory wasn't that of gold or wives like Solomon. His was a greater glory. It was there before he became a human being, He left his father's throne of grace. He left the glories of heaven to take on human flesh. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. But even when he took on flesh, his was a greater glory. 
I want you to imagine for a moment what it would be like if we went outside during morning tea and we heard the booming voice of God from the heavens. Imagine if we actually heard God's voice speak. That would be a moment, wouldn't it? Well, it happens very rarely. But three times it happened of Jesus at his baptism. This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. The father cannot control himself. He just delights in his son, more so than the son of David's in the past. This is my son, and he wants the world to know it. On the mountain where Jesus changed and his face shone like the sun and his clothes became dazzling white and the cloud of God's glory covered them. This is my son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. And then, of course, in John 12, where Jesus realized that he would have to go to the cross. This is the turning point in the book. And Jesus says, now my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. No. It was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And then John says, a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. We heard God's opinion of Solomon, didn't we? We heard God's opinion of Jesus. You know, Jesus never ceased to love God with all of his heart. Where Solomon failed, where we fail, Jesus succeeded. And so you see what this means, don't you? You know, Solomon's... Failure spelt ruin and death, not just for him, but for all of God's people. He was the king of God's kingdom. There were consequences for the people when the king fails. But Jesus is a king of a different order. When he's, his perfect obedience spells blessing and life for all who receive him. There are consequences for the king's actions. Consequences for his loving, steadfast obedience. Praise God for Jesus. Amen. So here's how it works. You see, because Jesus loved God completely, when that means when he died, he didn't die for his own sins. He legitimately could die for others. He didn't deserve it. He could give his life for us. So, which means that his death counts in the place of us, which means we can be forgiven. But more than that, of course... Jesus rose to life from the dead, proving that there is life and salvation and forgiveness for everyone who trusts him. And that happened because of his perfect life. Death couldn't keep a hold on him, you see. He had to be raised from the dead because of his perfect life. He didn't deserve to die. Boom! He raises life for us. And more than that, of course, he then gives us his spirit to live for him and to keep putting to death the sin that we struggle with. Which means that if you love the Lord, if you believe in Jesus, you're a member of his kingdom, it changes everything. What Jesus did in his perfect life, it changes our song. 
It changes what will be our anthem. You see, our anthem, the song of our generation, need not be losing my religion like Solomon's generation or the generation of the Israelites' kings after him. Jesus taught us what our anthem would be. He taught us song lines to keep coming back to. In fact, he's been teaching us the song lines in this series. And now he adds to the chorus two more lines. The first goes like this. Forgive us our sins. You know, when we make those words our words, when we're not just mouthing them, when we desire this for ourselves, what we're doing is we're turning to God and we're saying, when we pray, forgive us our sins, we are loving God. We are coming to him. And Jesus, through loving God completely and giving his life as a sacrifice for us, he enables this song of repentance and turning back to God to be our song. A song, that, a line that we regularly sing in our lives. Some of us have sinned sexually. Some of us have done a Solomon. Given ourselves to another, lost our first love. And maybe now we're playing syncretistic religion like Solomon. Worshipping God or pretending to worship God on Sunday, but then jumping into bed, either literally or metaphorically, with people who do not worship the Lord, but whom you've given your heart to. Your anthem need not be losing my religion. Jesus gave his life for you to give you a new anthem, to put new words in your mouth, and he is calling you to sing it, to make it your song, that by singing it, you can turn back. Forgive us our sins. It's our song. And you might think, but having given myself to another, the pull is so strong. It's so strong. He gives you another line to sing. Lead us not into temptation. What are we saying when we make that line our own? We're saying we are weak. I can't get out of it myself. Lead me. I need someone to take my hand and lead me a different way. Not into temptation, but away from it. You know, some people here struggle with addictions, things we give our hearts to. Drink, pornography, gambling, chocolate. The pull never seems to cease. We can't walk away from it ourselves. We know ourselves too well. We need to actually be led away from those things so that the pull on us becomes less because someone else is pulling you and therefore your love for God increases as the distance increases. And can I say it's possible? It can happen. Jesus teaches us it can happen. And he rose to life and he pours out his spirit to make this line more than words but to make this line a life-giving anthem. And perhaps, therefore, it's time for you to turn. Perhaps it's time for you to confess your compromised and your adulterous life and turn to God again. Forgive us our sins. Lead us not into temptation. For Jesus' sake, because we cannot live without him, but we can and we can only live with him. Amen.